This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and, and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This is your faithful reformist American patriot Muslim comes to you every week breaching those fault lines between the Islamist mindset, the Islamic world, and the West, the land of freedom and liberty. We hold no punches here. Reform takes no breaks. And pretty much any of the issues that mainstream media especially, but uh, really any of the media today doesn't have the courage to address you know we'll address it here, and I do it not only on Islamic issues, but any of the issues that seem to relate to the areas that are the stubborn ones, the obstacles that too few address. First of all, I have to this week take a moment and let you know that it was an especially prayerful 9-11 this year, Patriots Day. Uh, Each of us, I know, reflected on that time at 8.46 a.m. on 9-11 Eastern, in which our country was attacked with almost 3,000 dead, and then trillions of dollars later, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq later, with so many of our sons and daughters dying to keep us free, to initially bring an end to Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, to bring bin Laden to justice with his killing. But the struggle now is greater than it's ever been, and we know that there's so much progress to be made. And in fact, as I've said many times this week, two steps forward, five steps back has been the mantra of the battle against radical Islam. And, you know, people ask me when we formed the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, why why don't you just call it, why is your mission statement counterterrorism? That's really the problem, is you're fighting terrorism. And we tried to explain to them that, no, the mission is to defend the Constitution and liberty through the separation of mosque and state. And as I've expressed to you many times in this program before, that the great battle lines, the 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 chasm, the great divide is between the defense of liberty, the legalisms, the the state 
legal system that is based on reason, that is based on Western secular law versus the Islamic State. And sure enough, 12 years later, as ISIS gets formed in 2013, people then have an epiphany and say, wow, Zudi, we understand now why you formed an organization with a mission to counter the concept of the Islamic State and the need to separate mosque and state. And as I reflected this week, and especially on 9-11, I couldn't help but think, you know, Al-Qaeda was simply a symptom. And what did we learn? We still aren't even naming the enemy. We still don't even have a strategy. We still don't have a long vision. We only have a short vision. And even when that short vision finally gets the resolve that it needs to defeat Al-Qaeda, as we basically brought it to its knees in 2007-2008, we then have domestic politics that feed into a war weariness that shifts and creates vacuums that allow that whack-a-mole to recreate even stronger and this time allow a terror organization to have landmass in Syria and Iraq because of the vacuums that we left. But we aren't the cause. Again, we are a symptom. The main cause is a faith that I love that has to go through reform, that has to separate mosque and state and defeat theocracy. And while ISIS is a greater threat than Al-Qaeda ever was, and Al-Qaeda now is feeding off of the draft behind ISIS and is growing also again, I think any counterterrorism analyst worth their salt realize that political Islam, Islamism is the precursor. And as I prayed this week on 9-11, I prayed for light, for guidance to our nation to understand that Muslims can be our greatest ally and our greatest enemy that Islam has within it the solution and the greatest obstacles and problems. That Islam isn't the problem, but it's also not the problem. It has a problem. So let me, let me say this again as we went through the 15th anniversary of 9-11. Islam is not the problem. Islam, it's wrong to say, is not a problem. But Islam has a problem. I hope you understand the difference there. And that problem is theocracy. That problem is Islamism. And we as a nation right now, there's such a small percentage of Americans that get it, that developing a campaign to work with Muslims that are ready to recognize that need for reform, that need for counter-ideology, that need for modernization of the concepts of Islam are too far and few between. And as a result, we don't have a discernible policy. We don't have a discernible, palpable mission, a long-term vision. And instead, the Islamic issue is a ping-pong ball, especially now in the height, as we have less than 60 days left to the next presidential election and national election in November. We see Muslims functioning as a wedge issue, where 1% of the population, while they claim the Islamists claim to have an impact on the election. Well, well, seriously not. But the bottom line is is that they, uh, my Muslim communities that uh, uh, I belong to, 
are simply being led by Islamists, by Petro-Islam from abroad that has planted the ideas of identity movements in the name of Islam. And those identity movements have one side basically says that we are victims, that we are a body politic, a voting block that has swung from being pro-Bush in 2000 to now being 90% plus Democrat. And even the ones left in conservatives are, for in some understanding reasons, having difficulty with Mr. Trump. But this is, again, not party politics. This is related to a wedge issue versus a common vision that will keep us safe. And that common vision should be you being united against political Islam. And this week in Arizona, I spoke to uh, a legislative district, a Democratic Party legislative district, and they understood that I was a conservative and they know my politics, but yet they realized and their leadership realized that this is not about party politics, just as many of the conservatives that have invited me from Republican districts. That as our Muslim reform movement declaration proclaims, it is about defeating the ideology of the Islamic State and its Sharia states all over the world, defeating the ideology of blasphemy laws, of apostasy laws. So 15 years after 9-11, I pray for the souls of Flight 93 that saved so many other souls that could have been hit I pray for the souls of all those first responders that went into the buildings that were to later fall. I pray for the souls of Americans, Gold Star families that lost children in Iraq and Afghanistan fighting to destroy those enemies that tried to attack and did attack our homeland. And I prayed for the souls of all those who serve every day in our armed forces, in our homeland security, and in our police in our civil service that keep us safe and that as this war will continue to grow that we have clarity be it Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Yazidi, Baha'i, Atheist, Buddhist, Hindu of all faiths or no faith that we come together under that flag under that flag of nationalism that is Americanism that America is an idea the idea that is the most potent weapon we have against radical and political Islam, the underbelly of that iceberg, the tip of the iceberg, be it terrorism or al-Qaeda or ISIS, and under it being political Islam, that we begin to have leaders that will have clarity on who are our friends and allies and who are our enemies and combatants that we fight. So I pray that all of you had a blessed 9-11 at 15 years, and that 15 years from now, my children who were all born after 9-11, my oldest only a few months after 9-11, that when they turn 25, 30, 35, as now they're not even 18 yet, that they have a world that has some clarity just as the difference between the world in 1950, which was still coming to terms with who the enemy of communism and the Soviet Union was versus the world of 1975 and 1980 that elected Ronald Reagan and understood that we needed leadership that could identify evil as evil and the evil empire and the think tanks in Washington that came together in the 60s, 70s, and 80s to focus 
and harness the campaign and intellectual energy of America on the Cold War. And may we in the next 20 to 30 years have think tanks that are Muslim and non-Muslim focused on political Islam, that we have a security apparatus that does not grant security clearances to Islamists, that vets against those who sympathize with movements of political Islam, be they violent or especially nonviolent. So thank you for humoring me and walking through this with me. And may you have had a blessed Patriots Day. When we come back, let's talk about the gaffe heard around the world from the third-party candidate. Was it fair? Was it not fair? What about the other candidates on Aleppo? This is Zudi Jasser with Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment this week on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Your faithful American Muslim patriot brings you those issues that few will address, and I do it from a Muslim perspective that you just don't hear anywhere else. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for listening if you're new or old. And thanks for faithfully following our message, my message. So, you know, I I, I could not avoid talking this week about that gaffe heard around the world. A third-party candidate who would otherwise be insignificant, but yet was on MSNBC, of all places. And I say of all places because if there's anybody that's screwed up Syria, it's President Obama and and the isolationist element of the West, or at least the side of the, side of the West policy that pretends to care but ends up doing nothing. And I won't repeat all the details, the painful details of Gary Johnson's response, but... He was asked on MSNBC about what he would do about Aleppo. He then responded with a blank stare as he, you know, to his credit, honestly said he didn't know what Aleppo was. He thought it was an acronym of some kind. And yet, what does that mean? And I think at the end of the day, you can, all the hand-wringing that happened, uh, the, the 
analysis. Was that fair? And maybe it's just sort of a difficult name. Even before the Syrian war, nobody even, many Americans may not have even known where Syria was. But that week when he was asked just a few days ago was when the past week there's been on most news networks coverage of the carpet bombing being done by the Russian and Syrian jets above Aleppo of neighborhoods of babies being killed of children being displaced in the millions in Syria and Aleppo being the epicenter of that struggle that battle that war between on the northeast having elements of ISIS in the southwest having elements of the Free Syria Army fighting and even many factions within, and then Aleppo being the largest city, while Damascus is close uh, large, and that's where the government uh, capital is. At the end of the day, most uh, analysis of population says Aleppo is actually larger. So the the bottom line is is that not only does it show that Gary Johnson had a knowledge limitation on Syria, to say it mildly. But actually, it shows sort of this concept, and I don't think libertarians, the Libertarian Party has monopoly on this, but libertarians, and especially Governor Johnson, really just doesn't care. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel that Syria affects him or has any import upon his life. Forget that it has a border with our strongest ally in the Middle East. Forget the, the humanitarian consequence of half a million dead, 10 to 12 million displaced, out of a total population of 22 million. But what is its strategic significance? What is the need for a applicant for the commander-in-chief position who really the primary function of the president, yes, it is to convey a separation of powers and sign laws and work with Congress and but at the end of the day, one of the primary responsibilities of the president is foreign policy. And representation of the United States abroad in our interests for national security, for economy, for any other areas in trade and networking. But Mr. Johnson just seems to be nonplussed. And then he came back two days later and gave an even far more painful. Uh, and I cannot overstate this more painful discussion where on CNN, he was asked by Michael Smirkanish about Syria to try to amend and correct his remarks on what he would do and how Aleppo deteriorated. And he went off on some kind of word salad tangential, bizarre explanation of what happened in Syria, where he, he claimed that the Ba'ath of Iraq went into Raqqa and set up shop, confusing ISIS with, yes, there were some Ba'athists in northern Iraq that stood back and allowed, since they were Sunnis also, ISIS to come in because of their disgust for the Shia control of Baghdad, but he thought they went into Raqqa. So his his lack of knowledge became even more obvious and painful to watch. But at the end of the day, it might be a little funny. Well, you know, listen, having family in Aleppo, there's nothing funny about somebody running for president of the United States not knowing what's going on in Aleppo today.
Clearly, it's the greatest humanitarian crisis of the 21st century. Left to right, there's agreement on that. But the other two candidates are not, I don't think, any different morally from Governor Johnson. President Obama has, as Lee Smith wrote this week in Tablet Magazine, it hasn't been a mistake of his policy. It has been entirely deliberate. It hasn't been some kind of avoidance. It hasn't been a lack of desire to go to war or just weakness. It has been deliberate. And Lee Smith connected the dots, which I've been connecting for years, but few have made it so obvious that the echo chamber on the left, even those who, as Nicholas Kristof wrote, I admire Obama for expanding health care and averting a nuclear crisis with Iran, but allowing serious civil war and suffering to drag on unchallenged has been his worst mistake, casting a shadow over his legacy, as he wrote in the New York Times. So it, it, it's amazing how they disconnected. And even when he was trying to get public opinion on his side for the nuclear deal, nobody connected the dots because they wanted that nuclear deal at the price of anything and sure enough, President Obama himself, as Lee points out, made it clear that it was the nuclear deal that forced him to basically let Assad have his way. He said, in a December press conference, Obama said of respecting Iranian equities in Syria, which translated into plain English, as Lee Smith writes, means leaving Assad alone in order to keep the Iranians happy. And sure enough, not only did they want him to leave them alone, they basically said, we will continue to fund and fuel and arm and send soldiers to fight on behalf of Bashar Assad. That's, that's the situation in Syria. And the reality is, is that the left turned a blind eye to it. And even former State Department officials like Frederick Hoff said, Quote, the administration's policy toward Assad Syria rests on its desire to accommodate Iran, a full partner in Assad's collective punishment survival strategy, so that the July 24, 2015 nuclear agreement can survive the Obama presidency. And then he later said, Hoff lays out, what I want people to understand is what I've made, what I've had to make the hardest of calls. I think the nuclear agreement with Iran prevented a war and opens a door. I'm afraid that if I use cruise missiles or supply anti-aircraft weapons to make Assad pay a price for mass murder, Iran's supreme leader, who sees Assad as an invaluable agent, will scuttle the nuclear deal. That's the call I've made. There you have it. As Lee lays out, there's a direct connection. It was intentional. It was intentional that Obama, because of this, this blanking nuclear deal, gave the Iran the green light to maintain their man. Assad would not be in power if that truly had maintained as a civil war. But it was no longer a civil war where you had Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar feeding ISIS and its Islamist Muslim Brotherhood affiliates and other Islamist, uh, uh, peri-Islamist groups, and as you had Khomeinists fueling the Assad regime, Hezbollah now with tens to twenties, thousands of fighters inside Syria with their own jihad, Shia jihad against the Sunni jihad. 
In the meantime, the humanitarian disaster implodes and any hope of what could have been a crossroads of a possible vibrant post-Arab awakening Syria where you had enough diversity in Syria to actually kindle the need for secular law, for secular society and democracy, then became its greatest obstacle, which was sectarian divisions. Because diversity actually is one of the reasons why democracy can work. Because you had Alawite, Druze, Christian, Sunni, Shia divisions in Syria that could ultimately have necessitated a need to find common national interests as being Syrians and not as simply being religious factions. But instead, Assad fed the religious divisions, fueled radicalization, left ISIS alone, as Wall Street Journal defined it as an entente with ISIS as he tried to annihilate the more moderates. And sure enough, as we saw in the last few weeks, the carpet bombing of Aleppo by Putin's jets and helicopters with barrel bombs from the Assad regime also has basically shown that there was a scorched earth policy from Assad, the triangle of Assad regime, Iran, and Putin's Russia. So, then we have the other two candidates. You have Hillary, who basically is going to be a third term of Obama, and as much as she says, and some feel that she'd be more hawkish on Syria, perhaps, but she's not giving any solutions. She doesn't claim that the Islamists are the problem, and she has advisors around her that really worry me. And her affiliations with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and others also worry me quite a bit that she would continue the Islamist appeasement and not work to see that there are two major enemies in Syria, which are Assad and the Islamists, not just ISIS. So, the other side, you have Mr. Trump, who can't seem to find enough good things to say about the tyrannical Vladimir Putin, and yet he claims, which I agree with, that the Iran deal was one of the worst deals ever made. And yet, how you can counter and end and rip up an Iran deal while also massaging the shoulders of Vladimir Putin when every opportunity possible. And I've yet to hear Mr. Trump say anything negative about Mr. Putin. So I think we're going to turn one ally be the Iranian Khomeinists back and instead lift up Putin if Mr. Trump were to become the president. And I don't think in any way that ends up changing at all the calculus in Syria. So all three candidates, one, the libertarian one based in complete ignorance, two, the, the left one based in Islamist appeasement and weakness and an inability to understand the need for military power, and the right with a current appeasement of the tyranny of Russians and Putin, also no vision for the Middle East, without any use of the terms freedom or democracy. And what do we tell the Syrians? And as I said, tweeted this week, you know, all we can say is, with tears in our eyes, that the Syrian Genocide Museum in 2046 will have a nice wing for the Kerry-Obama legacy which also includes Clinton, that basically in the name of an Iran deal ushered in and allowed the West to sit quiet as genocide reigned over 
the Syrian people. And there will be other wings related to the media's duplicity and hypocrisy on Syria, the UN's corruption related to allowing charities to be controlled by the Assad regime, these truce deals that were all farce after farce after farce, and the lack of vision for a look at the Arab awakening as an opportunity for freedom against the dictators that had been the cauldrons that brewed these radicals for so, so, so long. So, Mr. Johnson, your ignorance is embarrassing. It perhaps may be unfit to be president when it looks at foreign policy credentials and understanding and vision. But it really puts you in par with the other problems and the other candidates. So when it comes to foreign policy, none of us who believe in principle and ethics of freedom and liberty abroad, who believe in preserving real interests of America, which are defending our allies like Israel and NATO and others, and those who share our values on the ground and in prisons across the, across the planet, have nobody to turn to this election. None. Zero. If anyone can say that one's better than the other, I would argue. But the gaffe heard around the world was quite an embarrassment. I suggest Mr. Johnson get some foreign policy advisors with some chops that understand what's happening because these embarrassments on the world stage are quite significant. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. We'll be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of Reform This. Your faithful American patriot here to address the areas of reform that nowhere else will. And let's move on. Roll up your sleeves and join me in the next two segments. I want to talk about a phenomena regarding the world of reform, national strategy, global strategy against Islamism, political Islam, and peel back the veneer of something that's happening that I, I have a guess that many of you may not realize. As you all know, the Arab Awakening led to revolutions against dictatorships in Tunisia, Libya, Syria, Egypt, and across the Middle East. And many of them have not ended well. But one of the stories that seems to be evolving in a positive way is Tunisia. And before we get into some of the details of Tunisia, I want to sort of lay the groundwork of what I want to talk about right now. We've gone through some definitions in this program, and I've talked to you about what is Islam, 
as a faith, as a practice, a tradition, a religion that has a scripture of the Qur'an and its tradition, and what is Islamism, or political Islam, synonymous terms, which have to do with a political system, a party platform, a legal system, all intertwined together into one ideology that dominates a community and especially a nation-state. And that ultimately Islamism is the belief that the political platform and the identity of the state are one, and they receive their oxygen from their interpretation of Islam. And that's what political Islam is. So, as that definition of political Islam is mostly early 20th century, where the original founders of that movement, if you will, some could argue the Prophet Muhammad was. Well, we can get into that in the reform discussion. But ultimately, the modern political Islamist movement is founded by Hassan al-Banna, and especially his mentor, Sayyid Qutb, who wrote a book called Milestones that talked about how to transform, what are the milestones in the journey towards the transformation into a truly, quote-unquote, Islamic society, Islamic government, Islamic state. And those books, actually, if you understand Arabic, and even if you look at the English, are are brilliant descriptions by a Islamist supremacist that you can see why he developed a global movement by the art in which he interweaved a personal faith practice into the domination and supremacism of a theocracy of a quasi-theocratic movement that fooled everyone into thinking that it was about religion when in fact it was really about societal dominance and the suffocation of any minority beliefs. But that's what Islamism is, and that's what political Islam is. Well, now fast forward to the 21st century and the Arab awakening since 2011, and now the West and many movements in the Arab world are beginning to become privy to what happens when Islamists take over. In Iran, the Khomeinists, the Shia version of political Islam, have been running the country for over 30 years, and if there was ever a fair election, would never win that election again. So the Iranian population is well aware of what political Islam, the Islamic Supreme Council of Iran is, and what Islamism is. And in the Sunni world, Egypt is a great example, in which you had the dictatorships of Nasr, Sadat, and Mubarak, that ran Egypt for over 60 years, that then gave way to a revolution in which the millions that went to Tahrir Square and across Egypt were able to buckle the knees of the dictator, President Mubarak of the National Democratic Party of Egypt, a fascist secular regime that still, as much as it claimed to be secular, oversaw a Sharia state of some kind, but was not part of the grassroots Islamist movement. And sure enough, peel away the dictatorship and then have elections, and it gave way to an election process that pitted many small factions that never got any traction to two major movements. The the old NDP that ran, I believe, Suleiman was his name, the 
old intelligence officer Mubarak against the Muslim Brotherhood and Mohammed Morsi, and Mohammed Morsi won that election. And just like Hamas won the Palestinian election against Fatah, when posed initially against secular fascists, the theocrats went out as so as supposedly being the moral alternative, when in fact they're both as corrupt as the other and two sides of the same Sharia coin. But the argument can easily be made that in Egypt, for example, one year of the Muslim Brotherhood running government did more to destroy the ideas of political Islam, of Islamism, than 60 years of the cauldron of the Sharia state and the Islamism of Al-Azhar University and other thousands of imams across Egypt did in radicalizing their society supposedly against Mubarak but ultimately for the global domination of political Islam as the Muslim Brotherhood movement was hatched and born in Egypt. But once they got a hold of government, the women of Egypt realized those that even had doubts or possibly thought about supporting Islamism as a viable alternative realized many that it was a facade, that it was a theocratic movement that was as Erdogan of the AKP of Turkey described democracy as that train that you get on till you get where you want to go and then you get off. And that's what they realized was the Brotherhood. The Brotherhood not only was incompetent at running government, it was theocratic, it was misogynistic, it was anti-Christian, far more so than Mubarak ever was, and it was anti-minority and deeply, deeply anti-Semitic as one of the first things Morsi did was reach out to Hamas and claim that he could somehow get them to the peace table when in fact all he was doing was sending them a sign that he was on their side against the state of Israel. But quickly the people of Egypt realized the insecurity globally that the Muslim Brotherhood and Mohammed Morsi brought to the table and the domestic destruction of their economy and social networks and culture that was happening and unraveling under the Muslim Brotherhood. And sure enough, a year plus later, large demonstrations went to the streets to reject the movement of the Muslim Brotherhood, and Morsi was demanded to step down. And unfortunately, that story ended in another coup. They had morality on their side, they had time on their side with the Revolution 2.0, but the deep state kicked in. That one-third of the Egyptian economy that's run and dominated and controlled by the Egyptian military and the NDP. And they decided to take back the reins by force and did not have an election. They claimed to have had an election subsequently. And now you have President al-Sisi who, without too much Flexibility has demonstrated that he's easily more moderate than Morsi, but that's not a high bar, if you will. He's still, I believe, a closet Islamist. He still, obviously, leads by some forms of Sharia law, still enforces blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, but is not as radical or as openly Islamist or grassroots Islamist as the Brotherhood is, and has reached out to the Copts, especially the religious minorities in the Christian community and others, and has even given a rhetorically 
laudatory speech to Al-Azhar University in which he told the imams, it is time for you to cleanse out the militancy, the violence out of the interpretations of what you consider to be Islamic scripture and we modernize those. Now, I've been critical of that by saying that he, as a dictator and a tyrant, did not use the words freedom and democracy, that he simply doesn't like the means and wants them to mellow out the means rather than redefine the entire identity of the Islamic State. So, this is the backdrop upon which now today, especially in the liberal left in America and in the West, you see a movement in which Muslims, a few select Muslims are being identified by groups like the Council on Foreign Relations, by groups like Brookings Institution, and others that are working to help the Tunisian Islamists, the Egyptian Islamists, to redefine themselves. This week, this month, Foreign Affairs, the font of information from CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, put out a few major pieces, uh, one by Sarah Fewer on From Political Islam to Muslim Democracy, and then another long essay by the head of Nahda, the Islamist party, the Muslim Brotherhood of Tunisia, Rashid Ghanouchi. And Ghanouchi has a long history himself, but from where I sit is the Hassan al-Banna of Tunisia, is clearly the Islamist theocrat. And I don't care how much uh, genuflection or or, or intellectual jujitsu he does, he can't change his stripes of being an Islamist. He has we could go on hours talking about his radicalism, his statements against Jews, his his uh, hate, his anti Semitism, his worldview which is clearly Islamist, but now he's trying to repackage himself and one of the ways of doing that is is saying that the term political Islam is no longer important and that Muslims must evolve to Muslim democracy. So I want to talk to you about that. Can Islamists evolve if they change their name, if they change what their ideas are? And I'll give you some benchmarks, again, back to our Muslim reform movement to use. And there's another guy by the name of Shadi Hamid, one of the heads of uh, sort of the Islamic ideology at Brookings Institute. He also lived and worked at Qatar, in Qatar, the central cancer cell globally of the Muslim Brotherhood, as when they're kicked out of Egypt, that's where they go. The royal family of Qatar has had a tight relationship with the Islamists for, for many years. And Shadi Hamid's book, Islamic Exceptionalism, came out, and in that book, he claims that the West should not push secular democracy down Muslims' throats, in that, in essence, Islam can have a humanitarian society based in Islamic values or Islamic exceptionalism. Those ideas make me ill, and it is time for Muslims to engage them on their deception, their dissimulation and dissembling, and attempts, and I think their attempts to change the verbiage now proves that we are making headways and improving that Islamism is a problem and that reform needs to target those ideas. 
When we come back, we'll continue this extremely important subject of understanding the difference and especially the similarities of how Islamism cannot change the stripes of its zebra. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. Bill said the same thing, and yeah, she hasn't through the years had history on rare occasions of getting severely dehydrated and going through something like that. But she doesn't like to drink water, and then her staff was jumping all over that. Well, you can't get her to drink water, because the, the obvious answer to dehydration is water. water. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser, and welcome back to our last segment this week of Reform This. We're touching on an extremely important subject to me, which is central to the work we do at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and at the Muslim Reform Movement, is can the Islamists change their stripes, remove their stripes, and I want to make sure you understand what's happening on the left, what's happening in the in the liberal establishment that appears to somehow be helping the Islamists pretend, and I emphasize pretend, to remove their stripes. Whether it be the Council on Foreign Relations that is publishing now a number of pieces that talks about ending using the term political Islam, ending using the term Islamism and beginning to talk about Muslim Democrats. They're trying to, again, superimpose this European concepts as we see in Germany of Christian Democrats. But at the end of the day, the reality is, is that it's deception. The Islamists are on a train that they'll use democracy to ride until they get control and get where they need to go, as Erdogan in Turkey has said, and then get off. Rashid Ghanoucci, as he wrote in the Council on Foreign Relations font of foreign affairs, says ultimately that he wants to, and as he said in a May 19 interview with Le Monde, that Anahda, his party in Tunisia, the Muslim Brotherhood, is leaving political Islam in order to enter Muslim democracy. He said, we are Muslim Democrats who no longer refer to political Islam. Instead, he wanted us to know that Anahda is a democratic civil party whose points of reference are Muslim and modern civilizational values. Unquote. He said that to the delegates uh, gathered and uh, at this National Democratic Convention, and he said he described his new party as a democratic party devoted to reform based on a national reference drawing from the values of Islam. So you see, even when they try to camouflage, they can't say that it's from God. Like the founding fathers in the U.S., who avoided using the term Christianity in our founding documents. Why? Thank God Jefferson and Madison won that debate over Mason because 
ultimately this is the difference between a moral liberal democracy and a theocracy. Because ultimately a theocracy believes that its legitimacy and its mandate comes from the faith, from the leadership, the scholars who determine what is and what is not Islam. While a secular democracy believes under God, as America's version is, that the rights of individuals are related to an inalienable or unalienable right to individual freedom from God for those who may reject God, for all individuals equal. Because once you determine that those rights come from Islam, then you have to empower, well, what does Islam mean? What is Islam? Versus every individual having universal human rights. And none of the writings, be it Ganucci's diatribes in the Council on Foreign Affairs journal, or Shadi Hamid's book that I've seen so far talks about universal human rights. So this is the essence that I need to hammer home with you. As you go to talk to your friends at work and at universities and in church and synagogue and mosques and elsewhere, as you go to talk to politicians and congressmen and women, don't allow them to say the transformation from one type of Muslim party of Islamist, Islamism to a Muslim Democrat will help. It might appear more moderate. There might be elements to it that are moderated. But at the end of the day, it's still Islamist because they wait for the clerics to define their mandates based on modern theological interpretations of not only the Qur'an, but of the Sirah or the stories of the Prophet and Hadith and the discussions of the Prophet versus secular liberal democracies. Now, Shadi Hamid's book, as he wrote in the LA Times, and I would ask you to take a look at that, because that's the debate that we need to have. And I I tried to uh, uh, tag him on it in Twitter, and he ignored it. But ultimately, it is important that the Shadi Hamids of the world, and there are many like him, I don't want to elevate him beyond the status he deserves. But when Brookings elevates this and allows him to have his perch there and at Qatar, and they work with the Islamist cancers of the world out of the Middle East, like Qatar, and they do so, by the way, after being having their gears greased to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars. But when they do that, he's writing about what he feels is Islamic exceptionalism, and somehow that he taps into that verbiage from American exceptionalism, that that city on a hill, that, that immigrant population that is the place for all to come and be equal under God, with a constitution and bill of rights, with a declaration of independence under God, with a government and a separation of powers that ends with the final say in the Supreme Court, with a electoral college that gives states rights and a federal system. All of the aspects of American democracy that all Americans should be taught and are taught, we describe as exceptionalism. And he borrows that and says that there's Islamic exceptionalism. And I can tell you as a devout Muslim who loves my faith that I reject that fully. There is no Islamic exceptionalism any more than there is Jewish or, or, or 
Christian exceptionalism. Yes, we each believe that our faith has the correct path to God, but when it comes to a nation-state, the American exceptionalism is grounded in liberty and freedom and that universal declaration of human rights and the equality of all. And yes, Egyptians can have their exceptionalism. Syrians can hopefully, in the next generation, evolve into an exceptional system. But I would hope that they're all grounded in a similar, albeit in their own flavors and unique nature, but a similar nature of a respect for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and a rejection of the Cairo Declaration of Human Rights. So I'm going to read Shadi's book, but I also demand and, and will continue to ask him for a public debate in which we take on the ideas that he tried to express in his L.A. Times editorial this week, in which he wanted us to believe that Islamic exceptionalism is all about equality, that Islam can be interpreted in a moderate way. And, you know, I would say, listen, I interpret Islam at home in a way that's compatible with American exceptionalism, so thus I believe that makes my Islam in some ways privately exceptional, because I'm not in conflict with American society. But the question is, is can a country like Turkey or Egypt, that's 90% plus Muslim, have a system, if it's based in Islam, be exceptional? And I don't believe so, no. And that's not a negative thing to Islam. I'm sure some may take it that way, whether they are trying to do so because they're not Muslim and dislike Islam, or they're trying to do so because they're Islamist. But at the end of the day, once a faith defines the identity of the legal system in the country, then if you're not Muslim, or if you're secular, or you're atheist, or Jewish, or Christian, or Baha'i, or otherwise, you cannot participate in that Islamic exceptional society. Your rights then become handed to you by the other faith. And that's nonsense. Sharia is Islamic law to a Muslim. But when the government tells me what that sharia should be, then that is not democracy. That is theocracy, no matter which way you spin it. But when we come to an agreement in which we sell our values publicly, based in the purity of their intention and based in the universality of their message, and not based in the religious authenticity of one particular faith, then we are actually either countering theocracy, or if you believe that it must be represented through the authenticity of a more modern Islam, then you're representing some form of theocracy. So don't forget these names. Shadi Hamid. Do not let this individual from Brookings present a so-called moderate democratic Islam. This is theocracy of a most dangerous variety that ultimately is shielding and concealing the reality of Islamism. And don't let them change the term. They're trying to dodge the use of the term Islamism and political Islam, as they say, both him and Ghanucci, that it's time to end the use of those terms. Why? Because they want to deceive you. They want to equate Muslim Democrats with the Christian Democrats of Germany, which I may disagree with the existence of that party in Germany because it's a faith-based party that excludes non-Christians, but ultimately still their system is secular and thus open to all faiths in Germany. But it's still not like the American one that I believe is exceptional, that I believe does open the door for all faiths because of the root, 
the immigrant ideology and the root sustenance under God. That I believe is the avenue for our Muslim Liberty Project, that we teach our youth, that we teach them that rights can come from God, that rights do come from God, and that the defense of those rights for all should be equal, and that we as Muslims should reject the Cairo Declaration of Human Rights because it is based on an interpretation of Sharia. So hopefully after this podcast you'll go on, let people know that this new attempt by the ivory tower academicians to tell the millions of activists that the Islamists of Anahda are now no longer Islamists, they're Muslim Democrats, they've evolved, they no longer need it even for branding, they they have become Democrats, baloney, they're still Islamists, because they will never abandon an attempt to Islamize society, to bring Sharia into government, they will never abandon or recognize the need to not use the mosque pulpits for political sermons. They will not recognize the need that the president be Muslim, not recognize the need for the Qur'an to be the constitution and the source of law versus what a secular democracy would say is that it's a source of law, just like the Old Testament, and all faiths should be a source of law, but not the source. That is the debate. Political Islam will live on regardless of what you call it because it will be need to be identified, diagnosed, treated, and defeated. Islamism will need to be diagnosed, identified, treated, and defeated. Liberal democracy, liberty, will need to be identified, diagnosed, advanced, and established freely as the solution to our current cancers across the Middle East and the cancer of radical Islam and the integration and assimilation of Muslims into modern times in the 21st century. This is Zudi Jasser. Thanks again for joining me on this podcast of Reform This, your faithful American Muslim patriot. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.